0: Good morning, this is The Burner, I am James Butler and it is Tuesday the 21st of April and we are still in lockdown and just at the top of the show a little bit of a plea which I will make from time to time, if you're enjoying The Burner and I hope you are because otherwise there would be very little reason for me to do it, please hop on over to your podcast app and give us a review. These really, really help us get that little bit more visible and draw people in and it really only takes a couple of minutes at most of your time. And of course, making things does indeed, very sadly, cost money. So if you'd like to keep me in coffee, which is also, rather sadly, the drug on which most of Western culture runs, miserable and unexciting stimulant that it is, uh, do also pop on over to navaramedia.com support and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, And for some reason that makes me think, perhaps after discussing dystopias last week, of Aldous Huxley's novel Island, the rather lesser known counterpart to his earlier and far more famous Brave New World, an exercise in utopia of a sort compared to that earlier dystopia, mescaline infused and precarious, strange like all systemic critiques of the contemporary world are, and tremendously interesting, one worth reading in lockdown perhaps. Now, How bad is the economic crisis likely to get? The default economic assumption of most central bankers and treasury departments has been things are going to get bad, really bad, pretty quickly, and then things are going to get sharply better. This is, of course, the infamous V-shaped recovery on which many businesses uh, of many kinds are depending, the hope being, of course, that just because lockdown is a measure instituted by the government, it's just an external constraint imposed on an otherwise fundamentally sound economy. And under the enforced chill, lies all sorts of pent-up desire for things, commodities, just waiting and ready to be unleashed over a market hungry for demand. O-P-U-L-E-N-C-E, (laughs) opulence. You own everything. Everything is yours. But is that really true? How many businesses can survive the lockdown by entering suspended animation? And how will we behave afterwards? Certainly businesses are reaching out for life support at rates nobody really calculated. The UK furlough scheme, which opened yesterday, looks initially like it'll be paying the wages of a million people from 140,000 firms, with that number perhaps set only to rise as the scheme has already been extended by a month beyond the initial proposal. And it's hard to imagine that it will not need to go further uh, and lasts longer than was initially expected. It's already coming in at three times the expected cost before the extension. Uh, nor is this a uniquely British picture. In Washington, the federal lending programme for small businesses ran out of its initial cash, £349 billion, after just a couple of weeks. In New York, the Merrill Grants programme for small businesses has already run through its cash in a similar space of time. Is this just businesses seeing an opportunity for some cash, even if they're not particularly badly affected? Maybe, but I don't think so. And does it matter what happens in the United States? Yes. Although we're in a somewhat unique situation with a global political and economic hegemon experiencing a period of deep dysfunction and decadence with a kind of crap Caligula at its top, a comically corrupt administration, increasingly dynastic element to its putatively equal society. What happens in the American economy affects the rest of the world, just as it did in 1929 uh, and back in 2008. Back in 2008, Mervyn King, then governor of the Bank of England, took a relaxed approach to the financial crisis in the US, claiming that the UK had decoupled in a perhaps Gwyneth Paltrow way, from the United States. and But for anyone who remembers that period, well, you know that that just wasn't true. The US sneezes and the whole world catches the cold. It's one area where it becomes appallingly clear that despite our tendency to focus on structural problems and constraints, politics and the quality of our leaders and the decisions that they make really matter. It is fatuous, for instance, to imagine, as the US Treasury Secretary Mnuchin nonetheless does, that the $1,000 stimulus check uh, will somehow be enough to cover people for 10 weeks. It's already abundantly clear that it's being used for food and for bills and for rent. and Not to mention, though it has had maybe less attention than it should have worldwide, photos of vast lines of cars stretching back a mile or more uh, at food banks in the southern United States. And that is a consequence of the kind of politics and the kind of politicians now in power, family dynasts, robber barons, spivs, fraudsters, crooks, Hollywood producers and the like. And that, in turn, perhaps suggests a lesson to those of us on the left, having crashed headlong into the wall of electoral defeat or the cynical stitch-ups which make make up so much politics, uh, who would hope to turn away, those of us who would hope to turn away from politics itself, or who hope that politics can just be got around by doing something else that can circumvent it, and whether that's direct confrontation at the point of exploitation in trade unionism of traditional, or perhaps new forms, or building up community strength and support through community organising. My point isn't that such things are bad. In fact, they're entirely necessary. It's that they don't necessarily provide a means of leapfrogging politics itself, especially not in developed liberal democracies. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? You've never actually set foot in a supermarket, have you? I don't have time for this. Back to the crisis itself. The shock is already partly visible through unemployment claims data in the United States, which look like it might hit a rate as high as 20% for the month of April. This is one reason there's a political force behind demands, especially in the US, that the economy needs to reopen. Uh, And the way that that force acquires strength is that it rolls together two separate needs. One is the push from business owners, that their businesses need to return to normal in order to start making money for them again, so that their profit margins can return, perhaps also highlighting how exposed and precarious many of those enterprises actually are. And the other is the need that comes from a wider mass of people, people who need to pay their rent, uh, who need to put food on their family's table. And these interests are not the same, but when conservative politicians roll them together, they acquire real force. But what one needs is profit, and what the other needs is wages. We'd be wise to keep these apart in our heads and recognise that the solution, frankly, that one side of this needs, basically helicopter helicopter money for people, not bailouts for businesses, is not the same as the other side, and that rolling them together obscures much more than it reveals. it's harder to get data for the uk our stats run a few months behind and so tracing the effects on employment are harder though we have good indications like the massive spike in claims to universal credit which tell us that things are getting really very bad here too you can also look at things closer to real time like uh, energy consumption data to get an idea of just how substantial the dip in economic activity is The effect this, in turn, has on how people behave economically isn't yet completely clear. Will we all rush out and buy lots of things in an uncertain time when lockdown is lifted? I am sceptical. There are lots of questions here, and I think we should be clear that we're working without much guide. Nobody really knows what even the medium-term effects on the economy will be, and forecasting is... At best erratic there should be, by the way, a boom in now casting, you know grabbing real-time data from whatever source to try to track what's actually going on, whether in terms of actual deaths from coronavirus and for instance, speaking to gravediggers as has been done in Mexico after skepticism about the official figures, um, or, or something like trying to infer wider patterns from more rapidly reported data like oil price or food purchases. And it's also worth noting that unlike any previous pandemic, we live in a world now which has extremely rapid and global means of communication, which in turn therefore feeds back into what we actually know about what's going on. Communication itself has an effect here. It's also worth noting how universal the effect is on so many industries and the questions that opens up for how those sectors might change in the wake of the crisis. The aerospace manufacturing industry is screwed pretty badly, and perhaps actually even more so than the commercial aviation industry itself, uh, with Richard Bankson begging for a bailout. Uh, Naturally, I think we should use this moment to try to force some change in this most destructive and polluting of industries and ask whether the high technological sophistication of aerospace manufacture can't be put to better ends itself. But equally, high street retail also looks pretty screwy. Uh, Both massive retailers like Marks & Spencer and Next, as well as commercial landlords, people who own the properties which they rent commercial space in, have written to the government saying that the fate of the high street, already looking pretty dire, will be decided in the next few weeks, not the next few months. And they say, quote, many viable companies uh, will collapse without rental support. Even massive high street retail chains like Pret are eyeing the future nervously. They've brought forward their plans to sell their coffee packaged in supermarkets. Might even the experience of walking down the street look and feel pretty different after this? Will they be colonised instead by the platform giants, interspersed maybe with retail specialists but the collapse of general retailers? As they point out, much of the government's loan programme isn't that useful to them because banks, which take on 20% of the risk of the loans, are very, very wary about lending to shops at the moment. And even if they do get those loans, the support looks like a few weeks' worth at most. Now, if you want a sense of both how wide-reaching the crisis is and how it accelerates trends that were already in place, the high street is one place to look. But another might be dairy farming. According to the Farmers' Union, a quarter of UK dairy farms have become financially unviable because of falls in milk demand and prices. Prices. That, in turn, is a knock-on effect of the closure of restaurants, cafes, hotels, canteens, a huge chunk of their purchasing. Milk processors that normally cater to the food service market have been cutting prices and orders from thousands of farmers, just as, right now, they reach the annual spring peak in milk production. Now, UK farming and dairy farming in particular wasn't in a good place to begin with. There are similar crises in fruit and vegetable farming as well as with meat farming. But many dairy farmers are looking at negative returns on a litre of milk and banks here too are very nervous about lending to farmers, especially tenant farmers who are among the worst hit. And you might think this is weird that this is perverse because in the medium term as the global effects of the pandemic shake out we might well get to a point where questions about food security about the domestic production of food, rather than ultra-cheap imports through complex supply chains, becomes a hot political issue, and the UK's government, the UK government's basic contempt for agriculture, which has long been basically overlooked, uh, changes rapidly. But that's of little help right now, in the immediate future. After all, you can't furlough a cow. So again, this tells us something about how widespread and how near universal this crisis is, how it touches on things you might initially think were unlikely to be affected by a pandemic. But it also reveals that the effects so far seem to be primarily acceleration rather than change. The UK high street, at least in its retail aspect, was already dying. The poison of rentierism is already sapping the British economy. Aviation already relied on a massive government subsidy and UK agriculture was already in a pretty dire state. It has, by the way, always puzzled me that the rate of death by suicide among farmers is not a hotter political issue than it is, in the U- than it is currently in the UK. It really should be. But just like in the political sphere where coronavirus has accelerated and sharpened the trajectories of government uh, rather than change them to a new direction... Uh, It's brought out weaknesses and problems which already existed. The new ones it has created, however, seem at the moment relatively minimal. So what might be new about the pandemic crisis and what might be new about its effect? And I think we'll only see these as the lockdown really begins to lift. I've got my eye on two things so far as behaviour among the wider population is a question. One is the consequences of lockdown and isolation on mental and physical health itself. As I've said before, slightly facetiously, we're conducting an experiment on a grand scale given uh, of giving most of the population in Western Europe at least some of the behavioural symptoms of clinical depression. What feedback does that actually have on people? Will it disappear in a kind of orgiastic explosion of spending and various other things after it lifts? Uh, and Additionally, it seems to me one of the very common experiences of the lockdown is a deep Deep yearning for sociality, socialization of some kind, to see people face to face. But at the same time, there is an increasing fear of it, a hesitancy to get close to people in public, a kind of twitchy nervousness at the thought of large groups of people close together. What does that mean for everything from commuting to clubs, pubs, and nightlife after this is done? So much of the economy rests on a base of assumptions about how human beings like to socialize, how how we act socially. What happens if that changes? And of course, lurking behind these, beyond the micro, the macro and the political questions of the world order. Speaking to Le Monde yesterday, Jean-Yves Le Trian, uh channeled the fears of many of us saying, I read and hear that the world after the crisis would have nothing to do with the world before. I share this wish, but my fear is that the world after will look like the world before, only worse. The point, however, is to change it. All right, a few small things. One thing that's been on my mind while making this show the past few weeks is how ill-prepared many of us have been intellectually for the political and economic impacts of the pandemic. I mean that separately from the government's obvious failures on pandemic preparation and the political issues around that. We're used, for instance, to thinking about disasters of a kind which are both created and then responded to by authoritarian governments. Think the Reichstag fire there. or emergencies or crises which arise externally and unexpectedly and then provoke massive reaction, mission creep, and shift the course of governing powers entirely. The most obvious example there is terrorism. 9-11, of course, is the classic case study. And We've devoted less time in political theory to natural disasters or pandemics, which are assumed maybe to institute temporary emergency measures, but ones which, because they don't have volitional human actors involved... Uh, and uh, are maybe less worrying to think about politically and which have only passing effects. But that's not how this crisis is shaking out. And that's especially true as overnight Trump has announced that he's going to somehow ban all immigration into the US as a response to the crisis. It's this dearth of intellectual resources, uh, I think, which have left people reaching back to the Athenian plague in Thucydides or the Black Death, or I think imperfectly but usefully the early stages of the AIDS epidemic. But none of these are perfect comparisons in terms either of their remoteness in time or their differently distributed effects or the complex political role of sexuality in the last case. The same is true in social science, it seems, as well. Much academic ink has been spilled, for instance, in thinking about the Anthropocene or thinking about non human actors, but relatively little, with some exceptions, on the nature and implications of pandemics or post pathogen capitalism. So on that front, if you're reading anything interesting or have been thinking about this too, why not drop me a line? Because I do think this is important. We have long considered the role of pathogens and public health in politics as largely limited to or analogous with basic questions of political economy. So the cholera ac- epidemics were very closely correlated, of course, with both geography and class. Uh, poor people live lower down, closer to marshy or unclean water, uh, as well as the, correlated with the capacity of Municipal government to provide sanitary infrastructure uh, as well as the development of applied scientific reason itself. And that still, that classic sort of late 19th century uh, mode of thinking basically shapes the way we still think about pandemics. But in this case, the social conditions which give rise to the pathogen and make it possible to spread are different. Yes, they may involve sanitation and crowdedness and space, classic political economic questions, but it's a zoonotic pathogen. It involves questions about human intrusion and rapacity in the biosphere, encroachment on the natural world, as well as the rapid spread of people through commercial travel and the nature of, at least for a class of people, a largely frictionless world. So lots to think about there. And if you pop over to the Navarra Media website, you can hear an interview with Will Davies that we broadcast on Friday, which touches on just some of those issues. Much, much more thinking to be done there, though. Uh, Other stories, Airbnb landlords are moaning that they're screwed and the platform isn't helping them, I find myself curiously unmoved. Uh, the contact tracing being uh, system being developed by Apple and Google might leave a vast chunk of people unable to use it because it's built for technology unavailable on basic phones or older smartphones, and that might leave many of the most vulnerable in the older population or poorer parts of society here in the UK, not to mention uh, the basic models which are more prevalent in various countries in the global south, without the help that it might provide. Uh, The WHO rings an alarm bell saying only a tiny proportion of the global population, maybe as few as 2 or 3%, appear to have antibodies in the blood showing they've been infected with COVID-19. There is, in other words, still a long way to go with this crisis, whatever the politicians say. The Commons returns to offer some kind of scrutiny today in a new digital format which will doubtless have its horrors and news this morning that Keir Starmer will make his forensic debut at PMQs tomorrow, declining to wait until Boris Johnson recovers from coronavirus. Apparently Downing Street has banned the word exit from any discussion of its exit strategy, now insisting it talk only of the next phase instead. Pop on over to to catch our interview with John McDonnell last night. There's lots there. And do please go and leave us one of those reviews. It really, really does help. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.